So it's about midday here on the farm. I got out here pretty early. It was uh, before the sun came up, which, I don't know, isn't that early these days. Got out, moved the cattle around, fed the birds, moved the chickens, fed the chickens, kind of did all the basics of my farm chores of the morning, fed the pigs, because as I'm recording this, the pigs are still here, even though the pigs won't be here very, very soon. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, kind of went through my morning and then uh, actually had to leave the farm around uh, 9.30 or so. And it took Toby Dog to go to the vet. Uh, it's time for his annual checkup, which the good news there is he is doing really, really well. He is perfectly healthy. His coat looks good. His weight looks good. His you know, recovery from Lyme disease seems great. He got some updates on his vaccines, like, you know, all the standard maintenance and health stuff you're supposed to do for your livestock guardian dog. Uh, I will say, though, when I took Toby away, Abby was a little bit upset. She felt left out. You know, when it comes to the two dogs, Toby dog is always like very, very reluctant to leave the farm. He never wants to go anywhere. He wants to stay within this space of the farm like he likes it when I let him out of the gate and outside of the bird yard and he will go like just around the perimeter and pee everywhere he possibly can and sniff around and just really try to claim the territory as his own because it is and that's what his job is I mean you know so much of what a livestock guardian dog does is that combination of marking and barking so they're marking their territory and then they're barking at anything that comes near it and that's how an effective livestock guardian dog works and for toby dog he doesn't like to leave the farm and he wants to stay on his territory and he wants to look over his farm and i totally get that and uh i don't know it's very much like me personally um i like to do the things that i do i like to do them in a certain way i like to do them in a way that you know i find comfortable and that will be just how I do it. I don't like to go many places. I'm very happy mostly just staying here on the farm, um, having my routines and, uh, you know, essentially marking and barking. I think the barking comes in the form of, you know, making videos and such for me. Uh, not so much to keep people away. It's just, I don't know, that's how I communicate. Just like how Toby Dog uses his bark to communicate. Abby dog, though, she is a bit different. You know, she likes to go places. Anytime I ever offer her to take her anywhere, like in the truck, she just happily jumps up. I mean, Toby dog, it is a real struggle to encourage him to get into the truck. And most of the time, I still have to pick up his 100-pound body and put him in there. But for Abby dog, oh, golly, she just, she will go anywhere I want to go. She just wants to be out and about doing things and be with me like that's just that's her energy and and the two dogs are just so different when it comes to their respective energies and and I think for a while it actually took me a good deal of time to realize that their energy was so different and their needs were so different and and it was it was a struggle for me because you know, and I've, I've said this in videos before, but I, I got really lucky when it came to Toby Dog in terms of he was like an out-of-the-box livestock guardian dog. He was ready to roll. You know, he came to the farm at about, I don't know, three and a half months old. Actually, almost four months old. And, and as soon as he got here, like, I had to do a little bit of training with him. I had to do the basics of come, sit, and stay 
which he even doesn't do all that well these days because he's an independent-minded dog. But, you know, I had to do those basics, and, and it was easy. And, you know, I think I scolded him a couple of times for trying to chase ducks or play with birds. And after that, you know, just like it happens in, in the novel I wrote about him, Toby Dog of, of Goldshaw Farm, he pretty much figured out his job, and he was, you know, by the time he was six, seven months old, he was working as pretty much a full-fledged livestock guardian dog. And for folks who are familiar with our YouTube channel, you'll know Abby Dog was not nearly that easy. Abby Dog had some complexities. Abby Dog, she came to the farm a little bit older than Toby um, by about a month, month and a half, maybe. Um, she came from a very different setting, and I'll, I won't even get into that one, and I'll just leave it at that. And from day one, she was high energy, high engagement. She was like very easy to train, like on the basics of, of dog behavior of come, sit, stay, leave it, like all that. She picked up those commands quicker than Toby and she was easier to train than Toby. She was more mo food and praise motivated than Toby. Like she was just super easy. But the natural instincts of the livestock guardian dog, she struggled. And, and, and so that was something that I found to be difficult because I was consistently trying to fit her into the framework I developed in my mind with Toby, and I wasn't making the adaptations I needed to, to really make her successful and make her, you know, really fit in and work here on our farm. Abby dog, come! I don't know if you can actually see this in the video, but both dogs are, are hanging out with me here in the hoop coop. It's a little bit windy today, and so I was going to record this outside, but I think it made more sense to record inside, which means... And, and by inside, I mean inside here, not inside the house. Pretty soon, I'm going to have to start recording all of these podcasts inside the house because, you know, for me to get comfortable and set up and just want to sit and talk to you guys for a period of time, it's so much harder to do that just uh, out on the farm in, say, December or January. Um, and so you'll, you'll see this podcast recording uh, places start to shift a little bit more as the winter gets colder. But right now, it's actually quite pleasant sitting here in the hoop coop. Uh, I got the sun beaming down. I got both dogs hanging out. Um, I don't know. You guys might even be able to see in the background that there's some other animals that are now in the hoop coop. Um, we have started to transition into winter mode, which you'll see in the videos in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, one thing to note, like a lot of our videos are uh, they they're produced. You know, it takes me and, you know, Valerie, who does a lot of my editing, like it takes us, you know, we're usually about a two week behind, like, you know, 10 to 14 days behind real life. And that just gives us time to edit. It gives me time to, you know, think about the story and structure things a little bit. And uh, it just is a lot less stressful. Like when I first started making videos, I was like, you know, shooting it, editing it and immediately putting it up and then just having to rush to do the next one. And that became really stressful. What you doing there, pup? You want to say hi? Yeah, Abby's saying hi. <laughs> but I digress. And, and so, yes, we're doing this in here. And I've got both dogs hanging out. And it's funny because you can see Abby here. You know, she's trying to get my attention and hang out with me. Toby Dog is peacefully napping in the background. And he's just a happy pup. As I was driving back with him uh, from the vet, um, I decided to uh, stop off at the gas station real quick just to, you know, uh, get actually uh, gas for the tractor as well as, um, uh, you know, pick up a couple of odds and ends groceries because it's like this grocery store that's right by the vet. It's like, um, you know, it's part grocery store, part gas station. And, 
you know, it's the closest place to buy supplies on the regular, or one of the closest places to, to buy supplies from the farm. And so, you know, just while I was there, picked up a couple things and had Toby Dog just wait in the car. And gosh, he just he just perfectly sits there. And that's something I would never do with Abby because the chaos that would ensue if I just left her in the truck would be immeasurable. Um, <laughs> so it just, it strikes me where the good parts of Toby um, you know, make him great for certain things, but they also make him really bad for certain things. Like, you know, the fact that Abby is the one who goes up and does the cattle chores with me and Abby's the one who I can, you know, use to actually help me move animals. Like when I was, you know, migrating the, the ducks and geese actually down to this part of the farm. Oh, Toby, don't get offended, buddy. Come here, come here. You get love too. But when I was migrating them down, actually, Abby was a huge help in just helping make sure none of the birds strayed away as I was herding them. And and so that's something that Toby Dog has never taken to and is not good at. And I guess that gets to why I wanted to sit down and record this podcast today, because, you know, I get a lot of comments from viewers when it comes to our dogs. You know, I think they're a big part of a lot of the, the videos I make. They're a big part of our farm. They're some of my closest companions for sure. But I get a lot of comments from some folks who say that I always treat Toby really, really well and I'm always really negative and down on Abby. Or I also get uh, comments from folks who, who will say over and over again that I am constantly ignoring Toby in favor of Abby and, you know, he's such a good dog and he's constantly getting let out. And, and quite honestly, the truth of the matter is they're both good dogs. They're just different dogs and they're different in, in, in different ways and they require different things in terms of care. They require different things in terms of training, in terms of my attention, in terms of affection, in terms of what jobs they're good at and what jobs they're not good at. And, and I've really let that guide. And, and so if someone were to ask me, which dog do I love better? The answer is I love them the same, which I know is probably what a lot of parents are forced to say about their kids. And then everybody says, oh, no, but you do have a favorite somewhere somehow. And, and the reality is I just love them in different ways. But, you know, love both of them with all my heart. I mean, you know, just Toby Dog right here as he's sitting here. He's just so calm and serene and gentle and just such a good pup that, um, yeah, I couldn't imagine my life without him. And while Abby has given me so many headaches and heartaches and stress and forced me to completely rethink my philosophy when it comes to training dogs, um, you know, the journey that we've gone on together is such an incredible one. And, you know, I'm so glad to have gone in on it with her and I'm so glad to have her in my life Toby's got some comments for you <laughs> which you know again is, is just really I think an important lesson and, and something to think about for, for you guys because and that and I think that that idea that you can treat them fairly by treating them differently is, is something that we we struggle with a lot in in you know life in general and society and in a lot of places where you know I, and I guess it gets into that premise of, of the difference between equity and equality where equality means everybody's being kind of treated exactly the same versus equity being everybody's treated fairly and, and you sometimes have to take into account like the circumstances that somebody's coming from or coming into and kind of how that works for them and how that might be different from one person to another. And, uh, you know, not 
wanting to make this a whole wrap on that topic. But I think that that's something that, you know, folks who, you know, see accommodations and aren't getting those same accommodations get upset over because they feel like it's unfair to them. And I guess to to not want to get into a whole podcast episode on that topic, I, I raise this just because I think it's an important test that we need to put to ourselves when we're thinking about ourselves, not just the ones we love. Um, I, I mean, I, I think particularly for folks who have dreams and have goals and and have internal motivation and are pushing themselves towards something, whether they you know, dream of someday moving out to a farm or a homestead of their own and raising their own food and having their own animals. Um, and, and they're kind of working to build up skills as well as build up the financial resources to be able to pull a move off like that. Um, I think, you know, you can fall into this trap. And I know I fell into this trap, right, of, of looking at other people and seeing what they do and saying, Hey, I gotta, you know, do what they did. And that's, that's like the path and that's the way to go. Um, and, and meanwhile, the, the path that might be best suited for you and most be, be most equitable for you and, and the smartest play for you might look very different than that person that gave you that motivation and inspiration. Um, you know, and I'm, um, I'm not going to name names because I don't want this to turn into something controversial, uh, (laughs) Or, um, uh, like, you know, I don't want to make this the focus of this podcast either, accidentally. And I'm, I'm finding more and more I've got to carefully choose my words when I talk about topics like this and talk about um, other folks and other farmers and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, there was a farmer uh, who was very, very inspirational to me when I was still just an office dude dreaming of being on a farm and starting a farm. Um, you know, I looked at his operation and saw what he did and said, gosh, that's how it needs to be done. And gosh, I would love to do that one day myself. And gosh, I'd love to be like him. And like, it it was a real uh, motivation and inspiration for me. And in the earliest days, uh, I was trying to mimic my approach and, uh, you know, think about how to get there um, and to like be doing exactly what he did, like just basically take his farm and transport it to New England. And and that's how I'd be doing it. (sighs) But I think at the time, because I was so inspired, I was also blind to the advantages that he had, as well as the circumstances that he had, and how those things were the things that guided him to the place where he ultimately ended up. Um, You know, for example, um, you know, he grew up on his farm, or at least, you know, kind of eventually grew up on a farm and, you know, was on the family farm and eventually after going to school came back to take over the family farm. And, um, you know, that's great for him and, and that's a great story. And he, he kind of figured out how to evolve from, say, his father's method of farming to something more contemporary that I think has served as a template for a lot of folks today in terms of how they think about farming and particularly regenerative farming. Um, and, and so I was really inspired by that and, and saw that and saw kind of the output and the end product and was like, oh, I got to do that. And I guess I got to just do those things. 
but there was always this nagging thing behind me saying, well, must be nice, though, to be able to inherit a farm, must be nice to be able to have, you know, kind of a father who taught you some of the basics, must be nice to be doing that since you were, you know, a kid working around animals and such, and must be nice to have like all of those advantages. And, and so it was part of my struggle early on. As my wife and I kind of like looked at our circumstances and our situation, we still said, hey, we want to go live the farm life and figure out a way to make this work. And, and part of what actually enabled us to do that and allowed us to do that was taking stock in kind of our advantages and figure out how is, how is our circumstance and situation going to help us move to the place that we wanted to move to in life and and sort of what things would we need to do to kind of make that at the core of our approach um and and so that inventory that we did was was actually pretty simple and straightforward where you know we looked at you know the fact that look i had a very good job i was making you know kind of six-figure income you know we were saving we did not live an extravagant life i mean we lived in like expensive places but even when we were living in expensive places we weren't like you know i don't know going crazy we weren't going out every night you know we were you know trying to be frugal like you know like didn't buy expensive luxury automobiles or ridiculousness like that um and so we had that as an advantage. And so we had like really, really healthy savings, both, you know, kind of on the retirement side, but also, um, you know, kind of on the, the you know, just general investment uh, side of things as well. And, and so we had financial resources that a lot of other folks didn't have. And, and so kind of that was one advantage. Um, we had the advantage of the fact that um, we didn't have kids. You know, if you think about the responsibilities and, and kind of commitment you make when you have children and you're raising children, um, those, you know, are things that you have to plan for and think about. Um, and, and you can't just necessarily be as capricious as if you are a, a married couple with, with two incomes and no kids. Like, you just, you don't have the resources. You don't have the same flexibility that, you know, folks like Allison and I had. And, and, and so, you know, that was an advantage we had. So we didn't grow up on a farm. We didn't have a farm to inherit, but we had the financial resources where if we said, hey, we found the right property, um, you know, we could probably figure out a way to buy it and even buy it without debt. And, and, and that's essentially what we did. We, we kind of looked around, you know, scoured the market for uh, what I was always calling kind of a... a, a was it wasn't diamond in the rough what was the expression i was using i'm drawing a blank on it but like essentially diamonds in the rough where it was like something oh it was it was undervaluations because remember i was working in the investment community at the time and so uh uh undervalued opportunities was was how i was always kind of pitching it to to real estate agents that i talked to which gosh man if i look back on that and think about myself i'm just like would love to, you know, slap myself up with the side of the head and it's like, you sounded so horrible saying that sort of stuff. You don't even know it. Um, but, but that's what I was doing. And so, you know, we eventually actually stumbled on this farm and this farm back in 2016 was on the market for, uh, I think it was like $350,000. Um, it had been on the market for like six plus years. The price had been dropping over and over again. Um, it had the upside of a whole lot of land um, and uh, kind of a nice old farmhouse that that needed some work, but wasn't like a complete like, you know, tear down like it just, you know, needed to put some work in and updates. 
Um, and so those were the upsides to it. And it was at a, a relatively reasonable price. And particularly if you were, you know, people coming from, you know, real estate markets like New York City and Washington, D.C., um, and, and now coming out here, you're like, wait a minute, that's not just like how much you need for a down payment. Like that's the, the whole cost. Okay. <laughs> like it, it just, the equation becomes very different for you. Um, and, and so that was one aspect of it. And then I think the other part though, was there were downsides to it. Um, the farm was in the absolute middle of nowhere. Um, I mean, we are, let's see, we are about three and a half hours to Boston, about three and a half, maybe almost four by the time you cross the border into Montreal. We're about an hour and 45 minutes to Burlington. We are about an, a little less than an hour to Montpelier. Um, you know, like there, there's just no large towns or large industries really nearby. And so like finding good regular work is much more challenging for sure. Um, so that's one disadvantage. And this was, again, 2016, pre-COVID, pre-everybody working from home and, and finding kind of that magical flexibility. Um, and so that disadvantage was something that we had to work within. The other part, though, with it was that... Oh, something's got the dog's attention. I think it might be the UPS guy. I won't get distracted. Um, the other part was uh, the the barn is was in very very rough shape, and uh, I mean still not in great shape, but like is this gigantic barn that was at the time attached to the house, and everybody saw that as a major financial liability, and it kind of was. I mean, in fact, we could we we actually got homeowners insurance after we purchased the place, but we got dropped pretty quickly on after they did an inspection. And they saw the condition of the barn and kind of saw the fact that the, the house and the barn were actually connected buildings at the time um, when we first took over the place, that like it was the same structure. And so the condition of the house was considered the condition of the barn. And, and so they said, oh, yeah, we can't insure you. Um, so like that was a challenge. Uh, there's another challenge in the fact that uh, our land, so all 160 plus acres of it, um, not all, but most of the 160 plus acres is actually conserved in the Vermont Land Trust. And, and th what that means is, so the Vermont Land Trust is this organization that tries to preserve and protect forest and farmland in Vermont. And uh, back in the 1970s, the folks who owned the farm, I guess in the 1970s into like, I don't know, it was like maybe the 80s that they, like they owned, they, I think they bought it in the mid 70s. They owned it through the 80s and into the 90s, and I think sold it like in 2000 or so to the folks that we bought it from. Well, those folks actually, uh, the, the, not the folks we bought it from, the folks right before, they actually were the ones who set up uh, the easement, the conservation easement. And so um, what that means effectively is on the downside, this land can actually never be uh, broken up. So I can't start selling parcels of land. Like it always has to remain its contiguous 160 plus acres. Um, and I can't like build structures willy nilly. I have to get approval. Like even for example, like when we built this greenhouse, like I had to get approval for the greenhouse from Vermont Land Trust um, to do it, which, you know, is fine because they're in the business of helping, you know, landowners and farmers preserve, you know, forest and farmland. And so, you know, if I wanted to have built like say uh, 
a swimming pool and a pool cabana and like something like that, I think I would have actually had problems and they would have probably declined that request. But since I was like, I need to build a greenhouse to house birds and grow pumpkins and other things. And they were like, oh, yeah, that, that's totally cool. Um, and so that's, you know, kind of something I had to do. And, you know, it has that disadvantage um, of, you know, can't break it up and it has to be used for agriculture or farmland, pretty much most of the land. There's like two acres right around the house and the barn that's excluded from that, but everything else is, is within that land trust. Um, and, and so because of that, um, that scares off a lot of folks who'd potentially consider purchasing this, purchasing a property like this. Um, you know, everybody, when you see our property, right, the house is like right on the road. And for some folks, that's like, you know, that's the opposite of what you want when you dream of like a country home in the middle of nowhere. And, you know, I, I kind of actually have that feeling, too. I mean, it's nice in the winter when you don't have to plow your driveway all that much. But beyond that, it's it can be a little bit of a, a headache. Um, and, you know, the instinct that everybody has is like you look it's like more towards the middle of the property, like up on the upper pasture, like at the top of the hill, which just has this incredible, amazing view where you can see like all the way out to Mount Washington and you can see like just multiple levels of rolling hills and mountains, whether it be, you know, um, you know, kind of the, the White Mountains or some of the more local kind of foothills and stuff around here, um, you know, Bald Mountain, Harvey's Mountain, that sort of thing. Um, it, like it's, it's an amazing, incredible view but it's only on the top of the pasture. You don't have that view from like, say our front porch. And so everybody would probably have this instinct if they had money and say, Oh, I'd want to buy that property and, and, you know, make that my home and, you know, build a dream house up on the top of the hill. You can't do that. And the Vermont land trust wouldn't let you. And so again, that becomes a limiting factor for some, but for a guy like me who is dreaming about starting a farm, that was perfect. It, it actually ensured that this would be essentially an undervalued asset. And, and we were able to, to take it over without really, you know, kind of having to take on debt. I mean, we kind of wait through our entire savings doing it. But, you know, beyond that, it, it worked out really well. And so that was an advantage that we had that somebody like the farmer who motivated and inspired me didn't have. And, and so that got me thinking as we started to take this place over, like, well, how do I get to the place where I can have my own farm and I can start things up and got me doing an inventory of my skills and like, what was I good at? And what wasn't I good at? Um, because of my job and because of my, you know, just general talents and what I've always done since I was a kid between storytelling and being creative and that sort of thing. Um, and also having just a, a pretty good marketing mind and business sense that had me thinking about like the business of starting, you know, kind of the farm and like, how do I approach it? And how do I use marketing? And how do I use content to tell the story and use that to drive the growth of the business? That was an advantage that other folks don't have. And, and so I was able to use those advantages to build towards my dream. And, and the guy who inspired and motivated me um, you know, this is not how he would have done it, but I think it's, it's kind of funny how that sort of works out where like, you know, in a place where it's funny, like I, I actually saw him a, a couple of years ago at a conference and was talking a little bit and, and sort of telling him the story of like, oh yeah, 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 you motivated me. And now here's what I'm doing. I'm raising ducks and geese. And he kind of just looked at me funny, like, huh? And, and it's funny how that motivation can, uh, shift and evolve as you go on the journey. So, so, you know, coming back to the dog is where I started all of this, right? 
like my motivation for how I trained them and how I worked with them was so different and devolved. And as I sit here today and look at where I'm at, I'm, I'm actually very happy with, with where the dogs are and how the dogs are doing. But that was something that took a whole heck of a lot of time. Um, and it was not something that I knew as I started out. And, and so I come to all of this because, uh, the other day I got, uh, an email from somebody and, and this person, I'm not going to use their name and get too many of their specifics. Uh, but like they had, you know, they had two kids, they were working in like a kind of, I call it exurb suburb type area around a, a major metro area here in the Northeast. Um, they dreamed of moving out to the country and starting a farm and doing something like we've done. And, and they were asking for advice on like, what should they do? How can they do it? And, and, uh, the, the, the wife, she, uh, was actually, um, she was like a, a therapist and the husband, he is, I think I'm like a mechanic of, of sorts, uh, but like works on like airplanes and stuff. And, and so they were telling me, like, she was describing all this in, in the, the, the message. And as I was thinking about it, I'm like, well, gosh, you know, you do have some advantages that I don't think we had. And you got to really think about how you take advantage of that. Like, for example, I am completely inept when it comes to mechanical stuff. Like, um, you know, I, I was inept of a lot of skills when I first came to the farm. I feel like I've improved some of them. Like, for example, my animal husbandry skills and like, I don't think I'm a good carpenter, but like I can, you know, build the structures that I need to build and do the things that I need to do. Um, and so those were skills I had to really develop. I'm still struggling when it comes to even basic things like changing the oil on the ATV or, you know, I mean, I do like the, like when I do the, every 10 hours I lube up my tractor and like hit all the points. And when I do that, like it takes me probably five times as long as most people should do that. Um, and it's like, that sort of stuff is like a real liability for me. But like, I thought about this guy who like, oh no, he's working on like airplanes, like for him to try to fix a tractor or try to, you know, jury rig something, or if he has some like welding skills, like those are all advantages. And so how do you use those skills to kind of build what you want to build? And they were, you know, immediately gravitating towards like, well, how do we get started? And then how do we think about social media? And how do we think of make, making videos and doing all this stuff? And, and you know, I kind of felt bad because I, I sometimes worry when I put stuff out there that like, because people see this stuff that we do here, and I know I've, I've talked about this in other videos, so I'm not going to harp on it too much, but because they see that, they get motivated and they want to kind of try to do the same thing. I worry because it's not a sustainable or easily repeatable path. It's not to say that it can't be done or it's not to say that you can't do something similar. I, I encourage and like, I genuinely actually like to help a lot of people do that. Like, um, you know, as much as I can for anybody who's particularly making like farming and homesteading content, I'm, I'm usually always trying to like help people if they ask for advice or tips on like how to improve their content or, you know, sharing things that I've learned over the years. Like that's actually really important to me to give back like that. So that there's other people who can do this too, but not everybody can do it. Not everybody's comfortable sitting on camera. Not everybody's talking, comfortable talking extemporaneously. Not everybody enjoys the tedium of editing or structuring a story or figuring out how do you hook somebody in to make them care. Like those are all skills that I had that I learned from, uh, you know, my, my previous work experience that I transported to here. Um, and those were advantages I had. And I, I just caution for folks who want to try to do the same thing, recognize you can't. Um, and so 
I, I say all this as that thought for, you know, when you think about having a dream and you think about pursuing that dream, it is really, really great to have role models. It's really, really great to have inspiration. Like without that stuff, you will never get to where you need or want to go. But at the same time, if you don't try to modify your approach and modify what your vision ultimately is to match what your skills are and what your situation is, I don't think you're going to be successful and inherently you're going to struggle and you're going to be unhappy and, and it's going to be a very, very difficult path. So the exercise I would encourage anybody to do and, and, and you know, kind of pull out a piece of paper and, and really get into this one. And I don't know, maybe you like if you're driving, pull over or if you're you know, watching this on YouTube, um, you know, I can maybe I don't know, I'm not going to put a list down, but like you guys can follow along here and just, you know, write this out and draw it on a piece of paper. And, and, and this is something this is the most, you know, dinky business minded um, like consultancy move possible, but I think it's so useful as um, a, an exercise. And it's, it's something called a SWOT. Um, it's, it's an acronym, it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And I strongly encourage everybody, regardless of what you want to do, if you want to start a farm or small business, or you have any other dream or any other thing you're working towards, and you're trying to kind of figure out what do you need to do and how do you need to approach it, I encourage you to do this exercise. I do this exercise every year. I, Allison and I like, we'll, we'll sit down and talk about these things because I feel like it, it's such a, a good way to honestly look at your situation and both the, the challenges that you face as well as the opportunities that exist and upside that's there that, that a lot of other folks won't have. And, and so what you do is you take a piece of paper and, uh, you know, break it into like four quadrants, you know, just like that. And then, you know, from there in the upper left-hand corner, you, you know, kind of write strengths, the upper, uh, right-hand corner, you write weaknesses in the lower left-hand corner, you write opportunities and in the lower right-hand corner, you write threats. And so, you know, strengths, opportunity, or strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And I actually very much like to do them in this order. Start with your strengths and, and just rapid fire, whether it's you or you and your partner or you and some friends or your family, whoever you're, you're dreaming with, you know, do it or just do it yourself. But it's going to be a little harder actually to do it yourself, but you can do it yourself. But just start rattling off and just writing them down, all your strengths, everything that you think you're good at, everything that you think you do well. Are you, you know, um, and, and don't do anything like generic, like, oh, I'm a hard worker, because I think we all like to think that we're a hard worker. Um, and unless you like are absolutely averse to hard work, and then you should probably put that as a weakness. I would not list something generic like that as a strength, because you're just going to clutter things up. But focus on the real strengths. Are you a good public speaker? Are you, you know, a good carpenter? Do you have a, you know, strong background in science? Were you a veterinarian? Like, 
like what are the things that you're good at what are your skills like what what do you do well and and don't say oh i don't do anything well everybody does something well like i mean heck are you really great at playing minecraft i don't know are you good at building crap on minecraft i don't know like there there's so many different things that you could be good at just list those things out that are you know, real strengths that you have that are not just like generic things like, hey, I'm a hard worker or I'm really passionate because, yeah, I think if you find the right thing, we're all that. Write all those down. <clears throat> now let's go to the weaknesses. And this is where you got to be brutally honest and and deal with the uncomfort uh, of talking about the things you're bad at. Like, for example, I am a total ADHD uh, person diagnosed. I am horribly disorganized. It's difficult for me to stay on task. It's hard for me to complete projects. I am excellent at focusing and working on things that I care about and like I'm, I'm hyper focused on and passionate about. But if I don't care about it, it could like fall to the extreme background of my mind. I mean, let me let me give you an example. Um, it's, it's always like the little tasks. Like uh, you can actually see a, a chicken roost right behind me if you're watching the video version of this podcast. And uh, I've been meaning to build that chicken roost for, I don't know, uh, like all summer basically. And uh, I, like I had this plan of actually including a chicken roost inside the hoop coop for the winter. And I was like, oh yeah, I got to do that. I got to do that. I got to do that. But I didn't really, I wasn't passionate about it. I didn't care about it. And so it just like went to the straight up pay no mind list for, you know, five months and then uh, the other day, just as I was getting ready to move birds in here, I'm like, oh, crap, I got to build that. <laughs> and so, like, I quickly did it. I had the same thing with a fence uh, right outside the hoop coop. Same deal. I was, like, looking at that fence for six months. I mean, I looked at that fence all winter being like, ah, I should have done a better job with it. I looked at that fence all this summer. I was like, oh, I need to update that. And it wasn't until the day I was moving birds that I'm like, okay, let me do this. And that's an extreme weakness that I have. And, and so, you know, I got to be real with dealing with that and addressing that. And, and so once you have that inventory of all your strengths, and then you have that inventory of all your weaknesses, then start to say, what are the opportunities? And now it's really hard to, to deal with the opportunities and how do you differentiate an opportunity from a strength. But the way I look at it is the strengths are inside of you and the opportunities are from outside of you. And, and so you know, the more you can list out those opportunities and things that you see, like, um, I have access, like, like, um, like the land cost for the area I want to live in is super, super low, or there are not enough people growing microgreens in my community, or, um, there is a thirst for videos about, something i don't know I'm, I'm, i don't want to send people down a video route um but like just you know kind of what are those things that are are there's like a real need for out there or there's like a gap or or something that people are looking for and you think you could be the one to provide it like get a list of those things and this is going to be so much harder to do like honestly when you do this exercise like sit down and commit an hour to it like an actual 60 minute hour like don't cheat yourself and be like okay i'm done like get, when you get frustrated like sit there in a room with a blank piece of paper if you have to but do not stop until you get past that that 60 minute mark um but when you do that you should be able to get all of your strengths and weaknesses you might still need to come back to your opportunities and you might still need to come back to your threats because the threats, much like the strengths are your internal and the opportunities are your external, 
the the weaknesses are your internal things, the things that you personally are bad at or not good at. Um, and then the threats are really the things that are from outside of you. Like, for example, uh, the real estate market has gone insane and we've had just massive inflation over the last decade. Um, you know, job security is really terrible. The, the place where I'm looking to start a farm is a very, very poor market. The market that I want to, or the niche that I want to write a book about is wicked oversaturated. Like, what are those things that could submarine any plans or dreams that you have? Like, what are those things that are threatening that? And get a real list of that. And like I said, you know, you're going to do that exercise in an hour. You're going to have a list of, uh, of, um, of the uh, opportunities and the, the threats. Go back to it a week later. Maybe talk to some friends, share what you've produced with folks that you, you feel like won't just crap on your vision, but really genuinely want to help you share that with them and see what they think about it. And, and I think if you can get to that place where you feel good about that, you're going to start to see very clearly, oh, here's what I should do. Because I'll tell you guys, when, when I did a SWAT back in, uh, let's see, it was after I purchased the farm, um, but it was before we'd actually figured out how to move up here and live here. But it was like when Allison and I were in that phase of life of like trying to figure out our escape from Washington, D.C. I, I did another SWAT exercise and, and I realized that, well, if I want to try to move to this farm, Number one, I'm going to need to figure out a way to keep working. I don't have enough money to just like quit and be a gentleman farmer. That's not going to fly. Um, Allison had already made the plan that she was going to go back to school and, and you know, become a nurse practitioner because, you know, she had been an RN. She was working in public health, but she needed to, you know, go get like another year and a half of schooling and then some licensing to, to actually be a nurse practitioner and be able to, you know, treat patients and prescribe stuff and do procedures, and like do all that stuff. She had to just go back to school. Um, and so she had already kind of worked down that path, but I was still trying to figure out how am I going to work? Like, am I going to find a job in Boston and be constantly commuting back and forth? Uh, and, and I actually started, I came up with the idea of, well, let me work my, you know, connections and relationships in the industry that I've worked in for nearly 20 years here and see if I can find somebody who might be looking for somebody to work remote or up in Vermont. And, and that's actually how I ended up finding the company that I, I worked for for a few years when I first moved up here was, you know, basically a friend of mine who I'd worked with at a previous company was already working there. And he's like, oh, yeah, you should talk to this guy. And he's looking for marketing help and blah, blah, blah. And, and like, that's how I got my foot in the door. And it was looking at those, you know, opportunities that I had of the opportunity that, hey, I got a pretty good uh, network and, and a bunch of relationships here. Um, and so that was one aspect of it. And then as I was saying, well, if I can find a job, what would I do? And I started to say, well, let me start with a basic, simple enterprise because I've never really worked with livestock. Let me just see if I can handle it. And, and that's where I was actually, <clears throat> um, and I've talked about this, actually, I was on his podcast not too long ago talking about this, but I stumbled on this guy down in Texas by the name of Jack Spearco. And he was making these videos on YouTube at the time called the Duck Chronicles, where he was talking about raising ducks and showing what he did to raise ducks and how he has a duck egg selling business. And I was like, oh, that's the perfect business, because if I'm thinking about that job and I'm thinking about doing that business, why don't I, you know, that's something I could actually easily do where I do chores first thing in the morning and let the ducks do their thing during the day and I can go off to work. And then at night I can come back and, you know, 
get them all set and like it's something that's actually more manageable and you know ducks are not nearly as intimidating as say you know giant shaggy horned cattle like the ones i have right now um and, and so it seemed like a good safe step into farming versus you know jumping in with both feet versus if i like looked at like the guy who i was really uh looking up to you know he he very much you know emphasizes kind of like focusing on chickens and that's the way you need to start which I mean, I totally get it, and I actually see a lot of reasons why that makes a lot of sense, but it didn't necessarily make sense to me. And and when I looked at my market, everybody around here has, um, you know, chicken eggs and, like, backyard chicken flocks, and so trying to sell chicken eggs was not going to be a, a, a viable business venture um, in any way, shape, or form, but I had a hunch that maybe ducks could because that was an opportunity. There was a gap in the market. I identified it very specifically in my SWAT. Um and so uh, that was where it was. Oh, gosh, you know, I, I might even try to flash up. Oh, yeah, if I have it, I will flash it up right now so you can actually see that SWAT that I originally wrote. Um, but, yeah, that like that sort of thing was part of what, what got my, my approach going. And, and then the other thing that I recognized was, oh, well, I know how to edit videos, um, and I know how to use a camera, and I'm, you know, a pretty good storyteller. Let me, in a way, to market these duck eggs that I'm going to have, let me start making videos about the ducks in the farm so that, you know, people know who we are on social media, that by the time, like, six months in, when I finally have a product to sell, they will have, you know, kind of become familiar with us, and they'll be willing to buy eggs from us. Like, that was the basic premise that, that got, like, everything going for me. And, and so that's how I started. And so I tell you all of this because I think you, as you're listening to this or watching this, uh, you're going to have a SWAT that's very different than mine. Um, and you, what you need to do is, is, you know, really look at yourself and your situation specifically and let that be the thing that drives you. The other thing, though, is don't let anything stay like written in stone. Like everything I just described there, right? In 2018, I was going to have a full-time day job, start with the farm, get ducks going, sell duck eggs to be, you know, a business and make that profitable and potentially become, you know, the duck egg magnate of northern uh, New England. Like, that was my, my long-term vision that I had when I kind of built my first plan. And that's not even remotely where I'm at today. Where today, I think, if I look at the total number of duck eggs that I sold, particularly given, and I'm not sure if you can hear them, but like the crows that we have and how they've developed this ultimate habit of eating duck eggs. Um, when I look at that number of, of eggs that I sold this year, I'm going to say, I haven't done my total accounting yet, but it's going to be less than uh, probably 50 dozen duck eggs that I've sold this year, um, which is significantly lower than in years past. And, and I will absolutely attribute that to the fact that, um, you know, I deprioritized it as a business because it's not nearly as profitable and it doesn't make nearly as much sense as a lot of the other things I'm doing where, you know, things like growing trees and raising cattle and raising geese are very much our core farm businesses. Like when we, you know, and I'll, and I'll put together a whole video that breaks this down at the end of the year, when we like report out on how much money we made, um, you'll see that those are the big things that drive this farm and everything else is kind of just like, I don't know, in the margins and just extra and, and you know, more or less like uh, bonus or losing propositions. And, and so, you know, that's something to recognize that you might start with one business and you need to evolve to another because of that. And I mean, look, to be very transparent too, right? 
part of uh, what was our ultimate kind of uh, success driver was, you know, off the back of the videos and content that we create. Um, and, and, you know, like I would not have quit my day job if we weren't making money through like YouTube or this podcast or um, now with like the book, like that's becoming like another avenue of income. And, and, you know, those are things that I did not set out with a vision to do. And if I was mimicking the farmer that I initially started to mimic, I would have never really ventured down that road. But for me personally, it worked out pretty darn well. And I mean, the, the exercise I also love to do is say, Hey, if I were to win the lottery tomorrow, how would I live my life differently? And, and the reality always comes back to me. I would still be making this podcast. I, I have such an inherent need to communicate and share and, and connect with people and tell stories that I would still be making this podcast. I would still be making videos. Um, like there's no doubt about it. And I would still be on this farm working on this farm because I love that work. I find that work so enriching to my soul and, and it just makes me so happy to be taking care of animals and working with animals and taking care of this land and learning new things and struggling and dealing with the challenges. If, if I didn't have that in my life, I would be ridiculously bored and depressed. And, and, and so I think that is something that I consistently look at and say, hey, this is what I would want to do. Hey, Pablo. Pablo Barncat's coming to visit me. And, and so I, th I really hope for all of you guys that you can kind of have that too. And it, when you sit down to do your SWAT at the end of it, also do that uh, lottery question and see what your answers are. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I say all of this just as a very, very long-winded way. Hey, Pops. Oh, man, Pablo's biting me. <laughs> um, I say all of this as a very, very long-winded way to say, you know, don't let comparison be the thief of joy. Don't try to chase your dream when it's actually somebody else's reality. Make your own dream, make your own reality, and make your own plan to getting there. Like, those are going to be the things that do it for you. Um, and so to the person who wrote me that email, thank you for writing that email. And uh, um, I, I hope this gives you the answer you were looking for, even if it doesn't sound like the answer you were looking for. And if anybody else is listening to this and they're hearing this and they're inspired or motivated and they want to share, um, I would actually love to do a follow-up episode of this podcast for folks who've kind of gone through this and talk about your plans and dreams. And so if you're interested in participating in something like that, uh, shoot me an email at uh, goldshawfarm at gmail.com and just uh, put in the, the subject heading uh, my dream. Uh, like do it all in caps. It'll make it easier for me. That way I don't lose it in the shuffle of all my chaos of emails because that is one of my weaknesses. Yeah, I might, like I said, try to build a whole future episode around this. This episode is actually brought to you by Lillian Books. And if you don't know Lillian Books, Lillian Books is actually the publishing company I started. And we have already produced our first book, Toby Dog of Goldshaw Farm. It came out in September. Um, there is a, uh, a paperback version. There is a hardcover version. There is a uh, Kindle, like digital version. And then there is an audible audiobook version, which I think is the coolest thing. It's um, basically uh, me narrating with some really talented actors uh, playing the different parts. I strongly encourage you to check it out. And yeah, I will be back very soon with uh, another podcast episode, I guess, next week. And so thank you guys for listening. And uh, if you want to rate and review us on 
uh, Apple Podcasts, honestly. That's actually the place where we need the help the most right now. Um, check out uh, Goldshaw Farm on Apple Podcasts. Even if you're watching on YouTube, like if you could do that and like just write a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be such a solid for us and, and do some great things for us and would be wicked appreciated. And I, I hope I've helped you today. And uh, I'll see you soon. It's got a soul, this hero farm. It falls asleep inside my arms. We walk the fields under the stars. For love is here, Gold Shop Farms.